I learned that there is an invisible world. I learned that there's an invisible world. It's all around us. You can't see it. It's amazing. And there are all sorts of creatures and plants and animals. And some of these little creatures, they have little propellers and they move themselves around. And others look like a blob and they swallow everything in their path up. And there's all of these crazy looking animals. And and you're going, what is this school teaching my kids? And so the next day, when your daughter walks to school, you go with her. And you confront the teacher and you say, what is this I hear about you teaching my daughter about invisible worlds with crazy animals, with propellers and blob-like creatures? I am not sending my kid to school to learn such crazy things. Until, of course, the teacher brings out a microscope and puts a piece, a little drop of pond water on a slide and slips it under there and says, look in there. And all of a sudden, You see a whole invisible world. You've never seen it before. And yeah, there are little animals and they got propellers and they move themselves around and blob-like creatures that swallow everything in their sight and all sorts of strange-looking flora and fauna that you've never discovered. And then the teacher says, yeah, it's all around you. Everywhere you go, these creatures are everywhere you can imagine. And you're like, oh, that's a whole new world. I've never seen anything like that before. You just got educated. In Daniel chapter 10, we are going to see a whole new invisible world. A world that is all around us, filled with all sorts of odd creatures. It is unseen and yet just as real as the world under the microscope. And so, it is... With that, then we enter chapter 10. And just quick review, when we were looking in, in chapter 9, you recall that chapters 7 through 12 in the book of Daniel are uh, a little bit different than the first six chapters. The first six chapters are very easy to understand. They're straightforward, historic narrative, and they follow along a nice pattern. Such and such happened, and then another historic event happened, and then this historic figure came into play, and he did such and such, and all of these things happened. Then when we get to chapter 7, all of a sudden we get into the world of visions and dreams and kinds of, all kinds of strange beings and creatures. And in chapter 9, we saw a, a little bit of a break from that strange... Uh, that odd type of writing where we have... Uh, strange creatures and what have you. And we have Daniel's prayer. And I want you to note that in chapter 9, Daniel's prayer um, begins in the first year of Darius. Alright? So in the first year of Darius is when Daniel said this particular prayer. And at that time, Darius was kind of a a co-regent, if you will. Actually, he was kind of an underling to Cyrus, who was the Persian king. And it was under Cyrus then that uh, the Persian Empire came into power, defeated the Babylonian Empire. And that was during the first year of the Persian Empire. And Daniel prays that God would fulfill his covenant and release his people from captivity. And so we looked at that. And now 
just by way of preview, what we should look at is this actually happens in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So a couple of years has, has passed, and once again, we find Daniel praying. And we, one of the themes we'll look on today is how uh, is the consistency of Daniel in prayer. And again, Daniel receives an answer. So I'm going to uh, leave that for later, leave you in a little bit of suspense as we, as we wait and anticipate what is Daniel's prayer and how was it answered. But I am going to um, jump a little forward and consider what is the need for Daniel chapter 10. What, what relevance does Daniel chapter 10 have on a 21st century church? Well, the first thing we should note, at least for those of you who are um, followers of Christ and hold to the authority of Scripture, I want to remind you that there is more to history than meets the eye. There is more to history that than what can be observed and tested. We live in a very scientific age where the only reality is that which can be tested and observed and put into a bottle and measured. But I will submit to you that there is a, a world beyond what can be tested and observed. And that only makes sense. If, we, if there is a God who is outside of creation, then I suppose it is not unreasonable at all to think that God um, can have realities other than this one. I also want to remind you that we need to begin considering where are the real battles waged. Oftentimes we think the real battle is waged at the ballot box or perhaps the real battle is waged in the protest line or the real battle is waged on the front line or the real battle is waged, you know, uh, with your employer or with your employees or the real battle is waged on the university campus, but I will submit to you that we are going to look today at perhaps, and try to get a better understanding of where is the battle actually being waged. So with that, let's look at Daniel chapter 10. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll come back, and I'll just kind of, um, we'll, we'll look through it and see what's going on then and how it is relevant to us today. So Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true. And it was, of, it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl and his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like a flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My 
radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, you understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief priests, princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the di- vision is for the days yet to come. When he had spoken to me, according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who spoke before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what, it is, what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except against these, except Michael, your prince. And this is the inerrant word of God. Let me just describe for you real quickly and remind you a little bit of the type of, of literature we have here. There are various types of literature in the Bible. We have poetry and we have epistle and we have gospel and we have... History, and we have a variety of different genres of, of, of writing in the Bible. We have parable, and there's even other things like sarcasm, and whatever. Anyways, lots of different genres. This falls under the genre of what we call apocalyptic. And apocalyptic just simply means unveiling or revealing, or something has the idea of pulling the curtain back. And there are a lot of really good definitions for describing apocalyptic literature, but the one I stick with and the one that kind of makes sense to me is apocalyptic literature is reveals to us the way God sees things. Remember when we were in the book of Revelation, one of the things we, we discussed when we were studying the book of Revelation was Revelation is... is is an unveiling or a revealing and a showing of how God sees things. This is, this is history from God's perspective. You and I look on the world and we see, oh, I don't know, perhaps um, uh, political figures coming into a dominance and then fading from dominance. We see perhaps generals moving armies and tanks into one place. We see corruption in one area and we see blessing and and giving and generosity in another area. And that's how we see things. Apocalyptic literature enables us to see things as God sees them. So we are going to view history, if you will, from a different perspective, uh, a heavenly perspective. So I like to describe... um, 
apocalyptic literature as literature that expresses the things really the way they really are or certainly the way God sees them and this is apocalyptic literature and so we are seeing things as God sees them and so anyways with that let me give you a little bit of background because this begins in the third year of Cyrus king of Persia so this I believe is important because does anybody remember what happened in the first year King of, King of Cyrus of Persia. Anybody? Yeah, yeah. So the exiles got returned back to Jerusalem. So you'll remember in 605 B.C. that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came and conquered Israel, uh, the, the, the southern kingdom. And he took captive all the people out of Jerusalem and brought them into Babylon. And Daniel was one of those exiles. And then... According to the prophet Jeremiah, and by the way, according to history, um, Cyrus would be raised up, and Cyrus would in, uh, allow the exiles to go free, to go home, and return. And so in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the exiles went home. You can read that, of course, in Second Chronicles chapter 36, or in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, or you can read about that in your history books. And so... Uh, Cyrus allows the exiles to return in the first year. They, they go home and they begin, they are authorized to begin rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And so the temple and the city rebuild are underway. That happens in the first year. And in fact, in Ezra chapter 3, verse 8, we see them, this is actually the second year of their, of their return, they actually start rebuilding the temple. They're actually starting to put stuff together, but we discover that there is a lot of difficulty. There are all sorts of people coming against them saying, oh, don't do that. You shouldn't do that. We're going to go tell so-and-so that you're not allowed to build, and if you keep building, you're going to get in trouble, and so we're going to go tell the king, or we're going to go tell the governor, and what do you think you're doing? And people are scheming and plotting and trying to put a stop to the temple rebuild. That was in the second year. So the first year they get back, they start getting organized, and the second year they start building and already they begin having trouble. In fact, by Ezra chapter 4, verse 24, um, under the reign of a different king, the work had actually stopped. They stopped building the temple. And so, I, I give you that to help perhaps provide some background on why Daniel is praying. Daniel is praying in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. We know in the second year that the temple began to be rebuilt and it was under very, very difficult circumstances. Outright, outright threats as well as covert uh, as well as covert threats were trying to stop the temple. So perhaps we have a little bit of background then on why Daniel is mourning and fasting and praying. It's important for us to recognize that while Daniel, we don't know why Daniel didn't go back with the exiles. Perhaps uh, it has been suggested he's an old, well, he is an old man by now, so perhaps he was just too old. He's probably in his 80s, perhaps even in his 90s by, by this time. He's a very old man. Perhaps he uh, just wasn't strong enough to go back. Perhaps the king wouldn't let him go. He was a pretty important guy in the in the Persian kingdom and in the court and so perhaps he wasn't even allowed to go but here's what we see is that Daniel while he is not physically present in the rebuilding of the temple we do see that Daniel is engaged in the work though he is not directly involved in the rebuild 
The other thing we see is Daniel will never see the completion of this building project. Daniel will die before the temple and before the city is rebuilt. This is something Daniel longed for. The exile to be returned and the temple to be rebuilt. And Daniel is involved in its rebuilding, though not directly. And he will never, ever see the fruit of his prayer. He will never see the temple ever again. He prayed for something he would never receive. Or he would never see. And I would encourage you that as we pray, oftentimes we pray for things and we will never see their answer. And yet for, and, and we live in such a self-centered culture that we think that, well, if I don't get the answer to my prayer, then, you know, God must have let me down somehow. It must be God's fault. Or perhaps there is a problem with God. And the biblical answer to that is sometimes people receive the answer to their prayers very quickly and sometimes people never see the answer to their prayers. If you've been coming to our study on Wednesday night, see how I got that plug in there at 6.30 downstairs. Um, and we've been studying the book of Hebrews. That's what we saw in Hebrews chapter 11. We saw the people who never received and never saw the thing that they were looking for and desiring. Reminds me. So perhaps even, you know, you have worked hard for one of your children. Perhaps... You know somebody, a parent who's worked really hard to see their kids go off and live a better life and they worked hard to put them through school and get a good education and the, the father or the mother or the parents pass away before they ever see their child graduate or become the successful doctor or engineer or whatever it is that they see. But they gave everything they had to make sure that their kids received those blessings. And so this is where Daniel's at. It reminds me of the story of... Uh, Puritan preacher by the name of John Flavel. And there was a guy when, who was about 14 years old and heard one of Flavel's sermons and you know, pretty much thought, well, that's ridiculous. I'm not interested in all of that religion stuff that Flavel's talking about. And he went on his way. He was about 14 years old. Flavel passed away. And um, <clears throat> this individual recounts on his deathbed when he's over a hundred years old in the sermon that was preached some 85 years earlier just kept running through his mind as he is weakening and getting ready to breathe his last breath and this Puritan the words of this Puritan preacher come into his heart and he gives his life to Christ there on his deathbed moments before he breathes his last breath And here is John Flavel preaching the gospel, never seeing at least this particular piece of fruit from his labors. Sometimes, folks, we pray and we don't see. Sometimes we proclaim the gospel and we don't see the fruit. Sometimes we do. Folks, that's not how we participate. We participate. We are faithful to do the things that God has called us to. And we will, regardless of whether we see an immediate or even eventual answer, The other thing we should note is that Daniel is praying for three weeks. This is very dissimilar then to the prayer in chapter 9 because the prayer in chapter 9 was answered while Daniel was still praying. The prayer in chapter 10 takes three weeks just to get somebody to show up. And during these three weeks, Daniel was praying, he was fasting, he was was mourning, he was... Um, he was wrestling in prayer and I just note Daniel's perseverance in prayer 
I know many of us have probably prayed for a particular thing for longer than three weeks, but have you ever given the totality of 21 days to prayer? I'm not just talking about, well, I'm going to pray for something for a few moments today, and then I'll go about and do my job. No, I'm taking 21 days off, and I'm going to fast and pray and wrestle with this issue. Daniel was a man who was unwilling to give up and unwilling to give in. He is an old man unwilling to give up and unwilling to give in. And here's the thing we see about Daniel. Daniel is a, has been a man of prayer since his youth. We recall way back in Daniel chapter 2 when he was still a kid. When he had first come to Babylon... Him and a couple of his friends um, ended up in a crisis situation. And in the crisis situation, what does Daniel do? Daniel calls a prayer meeting. He says, hey, we've got a problem here. We're going to die if we don't, something doesn't happen. What do you think we ought to do? I know. Let's get together and let's pray. Daniel, when he's 14, 15 years old, is calling a prayer meeting. Daniel, when he's 85 or 90 years old, is continuing as a man of prayer. Daniel has been through just about everything you can imagine. Daniel has been exalted to the highest height of royal prestige and he has been in the lion's den literally in the lion's den and everywhere in between this is Daniel how does Daniel uh, continue to live successfully in exile when prosperity comes his way and how does Daniel live successfully in exile when he's in the lion's den and we can see a hint of that Daniel is a man who will not give up praying You look and you wonder, how can a man be so steadfast? How can a man be so strong? How can a man be so above reproach? Remember when people were looking for uh, some black mark on Daniel's character and they couldn't find one? Think about that today. All of us. It wouldn't take long for any of us to find a black mark on any of our lives. I can find something in your past, probably in your present, that I can say, aha, and you call yourself a Christian. But before I did that, I'd have to say you wouldn't have to look very far to find black marks in my life as well. Daniel was a man who, though they sought for some weakness or flaw, found none. This reminds me of a passage in the book of Jeremiah. where Jeremiah says in chapter 12, verse 5, I think I have that passage. I think I put it on the screen. There we go. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? In other words, if you can't stand strong in the day of ease and prosperity, how are you going to stand strong when things get difficult? We today live in a day of, of, of great ease and great prosperity and great freedoms. And if we struggle serving Christ in this situation, 
What are you going to do when the bottom falls out? What are you going to do when your bank account goes to nothing? What are you going to do when somebody says you can no longer serve God the way you, you are required? What are you going to do then? Daniel got to where he got, not by just sitting around, just coasting through life. He got to where he got by being a man diligent in the Word of God, which we saw last week, and a man diligent in prayer. That's where he, how he got where he got. So what are you going to do? Things are easy now. What are you going to do when the doctor comes back and gives you the C word? What are you going to do? Some of you have been through that. Will you stand firm? Or will you crumble and you say, well, if God really loved me, He wouldn't let this happen to me. What are you going to do? I'll tell you this. If you've raced with the men on foot and they've weared you, what are you going to do when they come with horses? So Daniel is not that man. Daniel is a man engaged in battle. 85, 90 years old, and he has not given up. He is still engaged in battle. Well, with that then, Daniel is praying, and he lifts up his eyes, and there is this vision, if you will, there's this vision, or he sees this, this man dressed in, uh, basically in priestly garments, standing above the Tigris River. And, of course, the question then is, who is this person? So I'll just entertain uh, a few ideas on, on who this individual might be. And the first one is this guy really does sound like either, it could either be a theophany or a Christophany, that is, either a vision of God or a vision of Christ. And many have put that forth, and, and it does make a lot of sense to some degree, except it is also problematic because this particular individual seems to not have all authority. He does not seem to be sovereignly in control of everything. And so I find the fact that this is some sort of theophany or Christophany problematic, um, just simply because he says, oh, I needed help to overcome some, some entity. And so I, I would, that flies in the face of everything we've learned from Daniel about the nature of God. And Daniel, the nature of God is God is sovereign. He is utterly and completely in control of history and nothing uh, seems to hinder him. So I would have problems with that. Uh, another idea has been put forth, and I think this has some merit. And that is, there's actually two personages in the book of Daniel. The one we see in verse 5, and that is a vision of God. And then beginning in verse 10 would be an angelic being. And so this gets rid of some of those difficulties that we just mentioned. Um, However, it seems to. So one vision is of Christ, the second one is of an angel. And that solves some problems. Uh, My issue with it is... There's just no real reason, no exegetical reason for us to shift, make that shift in the text. And so while it solves some problems, and I think it has some merit, it's worth considering, um, not yet convinced on that. The third option is that it's all one individual and that that one individual is an angel. There are some issues with that. And the reason he looks divine and the reason why he has priestly robes and even divine Garments is because he's been in the presence of the divine or he has been commissioned by the divine so he is a messenger of God and so he we should not be surprised that he looks like the one whom he is representing representing. Uh, for our text today we will go um, with the fact that this is an angel 
that Daniel has a vision of an angel, and we note then that Daniel sees this vision, but his companions, his buddies, don't. But they sense something, and they all run and hide. So Daniel sees this. His buddies don't. But they run and hide. Have you ever been in a place and you just sense something? Something otherworldly? Something that's like, well, this isn't... There's something here. I don't know what it is. This is probably what they felt. When Daniel sees this vision, he becomes weak. He becomes pale. He goes unconscious. And he falls with his face to the ground. And I compare that to people today who say they either saw Christ or an angel and they seem to like, well, I just sat around and we had a cup of coffee together. In the Bible, it seems like when people see these types of things, they fall to the ground. And they are in fear. In fact, whether it's an angel or whether it's a theophany, what are usually the first words that come out of the the mouth? Do not fear. Why do they say do not fear? Because there's fear. <laughs> you don't say don't fear if there's no fear. So it's like, hey, don't worry about this. this is gonna, I'm not going to kill you. You know? And, uh, okay, good. So, so Daniel comes weak and pale. And in verse, verses 10 and following, we see this picture of spiritual battle going on. We see this idea that, listen, I would have come to you, Daniel. In fact, from the time you started praying, word was, came forth that I should come and visit you. However, I was hindered. I was hindered by the prince. By Let me make sure I get this, uh, get this right. I understand that the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. All right. This prince of the kingdom of Persia is not a physical, literal prince. I believe that there is a king of Persia who is named Cyrus, but it is talking about some sort of supernatural being who seems to have some authority over the kingdom of Persia. And so what we see in chapter or in verses 10 and following, we see images of a spiritual battle. In other words, going on there is an earthly struggle, but behind the earthly struggle there is a spiritual, a larger spiritual reality. And this text causes us to be aware of that larger spiritual reality. And so this individual, this personage, this angel was, dis- was delayed. When Daniel first began praying, this angelic being was dispatched. But it took three weeks for him to get to Daniel. And I don't think it's because heaven is three weeks away from earth. And so I don't think that's the issue. But simply that there is this greater spiritual conflict going on. So here's what we see. Let's put some of these things together. We see this earthly conflict going on in the, in the rebuilding of the temple. But there is a greater spiritual battle seeking to prevent that work. So here are some lessons that I hope we can draw from this. First of all, history cannot be interpreted solely by the work of historians. In other words, when we look at some of the great historical events that have occurred, perhaps... Um, In America, the Revolutionary War. Or, and what was that all?
all about. That was all about freedom. Right? Which is crazy to think because at the same time, we're bringing slaves over and enslaving people. We're saying we need to be free at the same time we're enslaving people. This is, behind all of this, there is a spiritual reality going on because those two things don't make sense. Perhaps we see when the Berlin Wall comes down as a great historical event. And what, what, do we, what do we see? We see President Reagan, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. A monumental point of modern history. But don't think for a moment that it was simply President Reagan's words and his display of force that brought that down. Or any other behind the scenes political maneuvering. Behind the scenes, there is a spiritual aspect to these things. And so pick an event in history. There is the historical event, and it is measurable. We can go out and we can trace how these things came about, and we can see you know, what brought about um, uh, President Reagan coming in to uh, take a firm stand against uh, the, the communist regime. What brought all that about? And you can trace it back. You can look back. What were the beginnings of the Korean War? And you can trace all of those things historically and find them out. But there is a, that we see, what we see according to this passage text. There is also there is the historic measurable reality and then according to apocalyptic literature seeing things as God sees them there is a spiritual battle behind all of this that makes me I was trying to think of another good example but so I think in the Bible try to read the book of Esther now through the lens of Daniel chapter 10 so what do you see in the book of Esther well you see you see a queen kind of diss the king so she gets replaced and another queen gets selected by the name of Esther you see a guy by the name of Mordecai he happens to, to discover a plot to assassinate the king you've got a guy by the name of Haman he's a wicked guy and he's trying to kill all of the Jewish people this is by the way Esther's written during the Persian Empire right so all of the so I think it's kind of interesting that, that we would have that. So anyway, so you put all of those things together. You have all of these events going on. And what does Esther do? Esther says, pray for me. Let's fast and pray. And see what God might do. Next time you read the book of Esther, read it through the lens of Daniel chapter 10. Because Esther is a very, very earth-centered book. It is talking about earthly historical events that happened. In fact, that's where the, the Jewish people get the, get the, uh, um, the festival of Purim. All right? It records that. So we, we understand all of that. It's a very historical, natural, earth-bound book. But don't think for a moment that there are not spiritual realities going on behind that. People have discounted the book, um, have often discounted the book of Esther because God is nowhere mentioned in the book. But if you read Esther carefully, God is all over the book, pages of Esther. He's everywhere. I don't know how you get around not seeing God in the book of Esther. But So anyways, think about that. Next time you read the book of Esther, as you're reading through the Bible in a year, I don't know when we get to Esther, but when we do read it through the lens of Daniel chapter 10, it might take on a different significance.
And so, that's number one. So history cannot always be interpreted solely by the work of historians. But the other thing that we should note for is how God is caring for His peoples. And so, we see this battle going on, and yet God is shepherding His people and bringing about His events. And so, this being that we see has been resisting Satan's work. They have been under attack, but God in His grace has been protecting them. And next thing we see is the power of prayer. And let me be even more specific, because I don't know that prayer has power. Uh, and you may be shocked at that. I don't know that it does. What has power is God. All right, And so the power is in God. Uh, and one of the means that we um, perhaps access or... Um, Well, I'll just leave it with that. The power is in God. And the Bible tells us the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And so we see prayer is connected with holiness. Sometimes we wonder how come my prayers don't get answered. I think one of the first things we might need to do is consider ourselves. Do we need to repent? Do we need to seek God? Because it is the prayer, the fervent prayer of the righteous avails much. And Daniel is a righteous individual and he begins praying immediately. And so those are just a few lessons that history um, is more than what is recorded that God is overseeing events that are going on in history and we see the power of God through prayer. Now, I want to bring up some kind of modern issues that come about from this particular passage of text. And some of these modern questions and modern movements, um, I think, bear some something to be said about them. It is then from this particular passage of text, we actually learn a lot about the angelic realm from this passage of text. And then through this, some have put forth the idea of what are called territorial spirits. Are there territorial spirits? In other words, does Satan have certain demons or angels over particular regions and uh, that have some authority over... So in other words, does, is there a, a satanic force designated for Pine, Arizona, let's just say. Because from reading this, we see the princes of Persia, uh, and then the prince of Greece is going to come. And so from this, many have stated, well then, it appears that hell is organized. To that, I will state that yes, hell is organized. I see no problem with that in scripture. Satan is organized. Paul often refers to principalities and powers and authorities and and dominions and thrones and world leaders. And the whole idea behind principalities is an orderly structure. Thank you. Uh, An orderly structure. I have no doubt then that hell is organized. So I have no problem with that. Um, We also see in Matthew chapter 25 or chapter 12 uh, verse 45 that Demons seem to have, there seem to differ in degree of wickedness. 12.45 says this. This is Jesus saying, so I guess it's kind of authoritative. Um, Speaking of this, this demonic force, then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. All right, so it seems then that they, there are degrees of wickedness. And then in Mark chapter 
9.29, Jesus again, speaking of the same thing, says these kinds only come out with prayer and fasting. So it appears there are some kinds of demonic activity that come out more easily than other. But these kind only come out with prayer and fasting. And so it seems to be a, they tend to differ in degrees of wickedness. And finally we read in like um, Ephesians 6.11 where we read that Satan actually has a plan. 6.11 tells us, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Um, these are not haphazard. Second. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2.11 we read so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his design. So all of these things seem to point to the fact that there is some sort of organization and some sort of plan. So I don't know if there are territorial spirits, but I will say that there seems to be some, some level of organization. And it would not surprise me to say, okay, well, certain, I'm going to regiment you in certain ways, and here's a company over here, so I guess that could work. The issue here, then, that seems to be fairly clear in, in Scripture. Uh, the issue now is what is our response? And the reason I bring this up is because there is a, a, a modern movement um, and it was really put forth by a guy by the name of George Otis and he put forth this idea of spiritual mapping. And basically the idea is what we need to do is we need to go into a city and we need to identify what these demonic forces are and then systematically break their power and this is necessary for the gospel to advance. And so what we do is we map, we gather the intel and then we go forth in what he calls informed intercession and there's this whole process of requiring special prayers and apostolic declarations and prophetic utterances and all of these things and the bottom line is is there's nothing in the Bible that has anything to do with any of that. Is there organization of darkness? I think so. There seems to be clear biblical support for that. Our response though is do we need to go out and try to map and figure out where all these things are and how to... No, I don't think so. There's no indication in Scripture for that. First of all, it relies on a faulty premise. It's blaming our sins, the sins of our own fallen nature, on a demon, and that's wrong. Here's the reason you sin. You sin, the Bible says, Jesus says, because you love the darkness. We like to sin. We like to rebel against God. That is our nature. That is what we do. You do not need a demon to make you sin. It is not the Flip Wilson cartoon, right, that the devil made me do it. He did not make you do it. You wanted to do it. We act in accordance with our nature, and our nature is fallen. We love our flesh. And we love to do what our flesh loves. You do not need some sort of demon to make you sin. You do it all, we do it all on our own. So the premise, I believe, is faulty. Second, We note that Daniel never engaged in any of this rigmarole of, that's been put forth as necessary for the gospel to advance. He didn't engage 
this prince of Persia. He didn't go out and rebuke it or take authority over it or any of that stuff. What did he do? He prayed to God. There is no indication at all that Daniel attempted to discern territorial spirits, pray against them, take authority over them, or anything like that. He just prayed to God. This makes sense. If you know the commander-in-chief, why would you engage with the infantrymen? I have no problem with private, private, first class, lower ranks in the military. Praise God. But if you want big things accomplished, you would go to the commander-in-chief. If you have secret, some sort of inside information, you don't, don't need to go to the infantrymen. If I have open access, if the president says, man, if you, need to, if you see something military, if you've got some insight on some military, listen, don't even go to the generals. Come straight to me. My door is open. I give you special clearance. You can walk right through the White House gates and come straight into the Oval Office and you have got my ear and I have the authority to carry out whatever needs to be carried out. Wouldn't you? And God has opened access to his throne room. He says, whoever will come to me, come. The throne of grace is open. Not only that, he wants you to enter into his, he wants to hear from you. So why wouldn't you? And so, there is no indication that Daniel attempted any of this modern, I guess, gymnastics, if you will, to take authority over dark forces rather he just prays to God so how do we engage how are the forces of darkness defeated well first of all they are defeated by our glorious and sovereign God this is the one Daniel witnessed and um, as successfully resisting the Bible tells us that Jesus appeared in the flesh to destroy the works of the devil And so Satan will continue to attack the people of God. It's kind of like, I guess a good example would be on on D-Day, at least in the European theater, at the end of D-Day, when that battle was done, it was pretty much recognized that the Allied forces had succeeded and that Germany's power was broken. But battles still went on. And there were quite a few battles between D-Day and V-Day. And Jesus says, I came to destroy the works of the devil. There's still attacks. So, how do we engage? Well, I think we engage, we, we take a position from Daniel, and first of all, we humble ourselves and we confess our sins. We fast, we pray, and we continue our duties faithfully. Daniel was a man who worked. He got up every day and he worked. He went to work. He wasn't clergy, because you know we only work an hour a day, a week. Bible also says, resist the devil and he will flee. Well, that's one way we'd, we don't need a spiritual map for that. Temptation comes, resist the devil, and you can resist. 
Bible tells us don't be ignorant of his schemes. We don't need to be. We have God's word. We also have, as I mentioned earlier, we have an open door policy with the commander in chief. And he will give us the strength we need. So, just a couple thoughts on Daniel chapter 10. I'll, I'll, I'll close with this. First of all, this angelic realm is not the realm of fairies and unicorns. There is a reality beyond what we experience. Our prayers have effect in that beyond reality. People ask me, how does prayer work? And and I usually answer, I really don't know. I know that we're called to pray. I know that it has effect. How, when, quite honestly, that's not something that I know much about other than we will pray. God has called us to pray. There is something happens when the people of God pray. The other thing we should know is that from, be- from the beginning to the end of life, we're engaged in a battle. If you think that you became a Christian and that the battle should cease, or that if you became a Christian and all your life is going to be wonderful and prosperous, you've been misled. Because I don't know of anybody except for some charlatans on TV who are lying to you, where everything becomes easy, prosperous, and healthy. Believers get sick, and we struggle, and we have family issues, and we, and we we have employment issues, and we struggle to pay bills. And on the other hand, sometimes things go really well for us, and we need to be faithful when things are going well, when we're healthy and we get a raise at work. Daniel was prosperous and he remained faithful to God. Didn't abandon him. And so from the beginning of life to the end of life, I should say from the beginning of new life to the end of life, we're engaged in battle. So how do we live in exile? The way we live in exile is we keep on keeping on. We keep persevering. We keep praying. We keep fasting. We keep recognizing that there is a battle and we are engaged in it. Whether we, You're engaged in it whether you like it or not. You can give up and become a casualty of war, or you can keep fighting. Daniel kept fighting. I would encourage and exhort you all, let's keep fighting, for God um, is the victor, and this is a worthy endeavor. Let's stand and